Miles. My name is Miles. Hey guys, it's Sean. And we are super excited to bring you this case. Today we're going to be covering the staircase. Okay, Sean, so how much do you know about the staircase? Staircases? I've been using those my whole life. No. I know everything about them. <laughs> I mean the staircase. The the story about the Michael Peterson. Staircase. Oh, the staircase? Yeah. Yeah, I know lots about that. Okay, well, let's get into the story then. So if you know this case, you know that there's a lot going on, and it's kind of difficult to know where to start, but I kind of decided to start at the beginning of when everything kind of starts to go downhill, which is the beginning, the beginning. So we're starting in 1972 at a U.S. military base in Germany. Two school teachers become very close friends. Their names are Patricia and Elizabeth. Elizabeth soon met a man named George Ratliff. They married, and the two couples became very close. So that's Patricia and her husband, and Elizabeth and her husband. Both women had two children. Patty had two sons, Clayton and Todd, and Elizabeth had two daughters, Margaret and Martha. It wasn't long before George found a close friend of his own, Patricia's husband, a man named Michael Peterson. Michael was a Vietnam War vet, and George was a captain in the military, so the two had a lot to talk about. The couples were neighbors and shared much of their lives together, but all good things must come to an end, and in 1983, on a military operation, George passed away from a heart attack. This is where things start to get a little bit dark. After the death of her husband, Elizabeth began to spend more and more time with her best friend's family, spending dinners with the Petersons and joining them in family gatherings and outings. So, you know, all of these children were all together and the adults were together. It seems normal and reasonable enough. However, soon it became clear that Michael and Elizabeth were spending more and more time alone together. Although they assured close ones that their relationship was platonic only, you can imagine. The writing's on the wall on that one. Yeah. So Michael insisted that on the nights that they spent together, so he wouldn't actually spend the night, but he would spend, like, the night hours together. Um, which was, by all account, almost every night. All he did was help with household chores or read Elizabeth's two young daughters, Margaret and Martha, bedtime stories. Now, this I find interesting because later we'll find out that Elizabeth actually has a hired nanny. So why wouldn't the nanny have stayed to put the children to sleep? Hmm. I didn't know that. Whenever I babysit, I always put the kids to sleep. One night after dinner at Elizabeth's, Michael offered to stay and help clean up and take care of the children. He was the last person to see Elizabeth alive. On November 25th, 1985, Elizabeth was found at the bottom of the stairs in her home, dead. She was found by Barbara, the hired nanny, who said that there had been so much blood. 
At the time of her death, German authorities concluded that she had died from intracerebral hemorrhaging, secondary to a bleeding disorder known as von Willebrand's disease, which I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it affects the clotting of the blood. So like when you get cut or something, it just keeps bleeding and it doesn't clot. Um, They basically said that she had died from the hemorrhage and then she had fallen. And so the death was ruled an accident. The Ratliff children were now orphaned, but not for long. They were soon adopted by none other than the Peterson family. So he adopted Elizabeth's kids? He did. Margaret and Martha came with quite a substantial insurance payout, which for obvious reasons causes some to wonder what Michael's true intentions were. Now, I tried to find a will or something like that, but I couldn't really come across anything about why the Petersons got custody of the kids. I'm not sure, really. In 1987, two years after the death of Elizabeth, Michael and Patty got a divorce. The boys, Clayton and Todd, went to live with Patty, and the girls, Margaret and Martha, moved with their guardian, Michael, to Durham, North Carolina. Clayton and Todd soon followed to join their father in Durham. Here starts the second part of this extremely and overwhelmingly detailed case. We're going to take a quick break so you can hear about a really awesome podcast coming out called Still Unknown. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe. And forgive me for interrupting this great episode of Forensic Miles, but I wanted to just let you all know that I have a brand new true crime podcast of my own called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Each week, I will dive into a new unsolved murder or missing persons case, and who knows, maybe even a paranormal story every now and then. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast here. You can also follow the podcast Instagram page at Still Unknown Podcast. Episode one will be out on January first, so subscribe now to hear it when it debuts. Thank you, and now back to this episode of Forensic Miles. Michael Peterson soon met Kathleen Atwater a successful Nortel business executive, and in 1989, they moved in together. Kathleen was extremely successful and in a very high-up position at Nortel Networks. She was known as a hardworking, strong, resourceful, and fun-loving woman. She was a businesswoman and a socialite. In fact, Kathleen graduated from Duke University, where she had been the first woman accepted into the School of Engineering in 1971. Michael's family is starting to get really big now. So Michael and Kathleen merge their families together. So that's Clayton, Todd, Margaret, Martha, and Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin. Could you imagine a family that big? How many kids is that? Five? One, two, three, four. Yep, five kids. That's a lot of kids. Um, But they're not little kids. I think they're all kind of in their late teens, college years at this point. It was said that Kathleen and Michael connected on another level, and a quote that I found said, they felt like soulmates. They would finish each other's sentences. 
So now I'm going to go on a little bit of a timeline just over these next few things. And some of them are kind of important, but they're just interesting sort of facts. So Michael published his first book in 1990 called A Time for War, which tells the stories of both American and Vietnamese experiences during the Vietnam War. And, you know, it makes sense that he would write about a war because he fought in the war. Um, This book did pretty well, I think. Um, In 1992, the Peterson and Atwater clans move in to the infamous mansion. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this. Um, I'll add some on the blog, but this is an amazing house. It's described on Zillow as a five-bedroom, five-and-a-half bathroom, nine 1,429 square foot house. Wow. That's huge, right? Gotta have space for all them kids. That's true. It's more than nine times the house that we're living in now. Um, But yeah, they've got a ton of people living there. His second book was published in 1996 and was also about the Vietnam War. It was called Bitter Peace. In 1997, Michael and Kathleen married and made their large family official. He co-wrote his third book in 1998 called Charlie Two Shoes and the Marines of Love Company. The only reason I bring this up is the last, this last book is still beloved and treasured among some to this day, even after everything that has happened. So he only wrote those three couple books? No, I think he wrote a few more, but these are kind of his big ones. Uh-huh. During this period, Michael worked as a columnist for the Durham Herald newspaper. His columns were known to criticize Durham County District Attorney James Harden Jr. He comes back later in this story. And it expresses opinions on the racial divide that existed in Durham at the time. When was this? The 90s? Mm-hmm. Early 90s, yeah. Or, well, yeah. Early to late 90s. Wow. Michael ran for Durham County or Durham City. Durham City Council in the fall of 2001, but lost the mayoral race when he admitted that he had not sustained a permanent injury to his leg from combat in in Vietnam like he had claimed, but rather a car crash in Japan. And he had been lying about this for years, but records show that he was honorably discharged from the military because of this injury. So I guess the military knew where he got his injury, but he had been lying to everybody else. Kind of over-exaggerated it. Yeah. I'm not really sure about that exactly. Okay. And this is where everything goes terribly wrong. The Petersons had spent the day of December 9th, 2001, getting ready for their children to come home for Christmas break. So they had, they were all at college or university and they were coming home. They had gone Christmas shopping, seen a movie, drank some wine, and then they started to slow down for the night. Kathleen had gone up to bed while Michael stayed outside to smoke a cigarette. At around 2.40 in the morning, Michael had come back into the home and found his wife unconscious at the bottom of their stairs in a pool of blood. He called 911. Now what I want to do is just read this 911 call because I think it's important for the case. Sean, will you be the 911 operator and I'll be Michael? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So this 911 call was from December 9th, 2001, 2.40 a.m., and the 911 operator's name was Mary Ellen. Durham 911, where's your emergency? 1810 Cedar Street, please. 
What's wrong? My wife had an accident. She's still breathing. What kind of an accident? She fell down the stairs. She's still breathing. Please come. Is she conscious? What? Sir, is she conscious? No, she's not conscious. Please. How many stairs did she fall down? What? Huh? How many stairs? The back stairs. How many? Oh, um, uh, uh. Sir, calm down. Calm down. Oh, 1520, I don't know. Please get somebody out here right away, please. Okay, somebody's dispatching the ambulance while I'm asking you these questions. It's off a, it's on Forest Hills, okay? Please, please. Okay, sir. Somebody else is dispatching the ambulance. Is your wife conscious yet? Uh, uh. Hello? Hello? Uh, mm, uh. Dial tone. So, Michael hangs up. Now, he calls back, and the second 911 call is six minutes later at 2.46 a.m. Okay, Sean, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Durham 911, where's your emergency? Where are they? This is 1810 Cedar. What? She's not breathing. Please. Please, would you hurry up? Sir? Could you hear me? Sir. Sir, calm down. They're on their way. Hello? Hello? Can you tell me for sure she's not breathing? Dial tone. So he hangs up again. So what do you think? I think something fishy's going on. Another set of stairs and another lover. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's really interesting that he hangs up both times. And I've called 911, not in this sort of a situation, but I. Don't hang up until they tell me to hang up. What's your experience? I've never dialed 911. Well, I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, I'm sure it's crazy, but I don't even know that he really got his the response that he was asking for before he hung up. He hung up. So, I don't, I don't really know. So when the police arrive on the scene, Michael states that his wife must have fallen down the stairs because she had been drinking and taken a Valium. However, the autopsy report that came, I believe, a day later had something completely different to say. So when the paramedics arrived on scene, Michael stated that his wife must have fallen down the stairs because she had been drinking and taken a Valium. However, the autopsy report, which came a couple days later, had something different to say. Now, when they arrived on scene, Kathleen was dead. They found that Kathleen's blood alcohol level was 0.07. So she had been drinking. Um, and to put this in perspective, this is the level of somebody who would have had four to five drinks and is considered or could be considered a DUI. But walking up the stairs is different than driving a car, right? Definitely. So I don't really know. This is a grown woman. She's probably walked these stairs hundreds of times in her life and probably done it after four to five drinks. Why would this time be different? So the report stated that Kathleen had sustained severe injuries, including a fracture of the thyroid neck cartilage, seven lacerations to the top and the back of her head. 
and these injuries were consistent with blows from a blunt object not falling down the stairs. You don't get cuts on the top of your head from falling down the stairs. Like, these were, like, on the top of her head, not, like, on her forehead or whatever, on the top of it. So she didn't just take a tumble. She didn't take a tumble. There were some things before the the stairs. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I find interesting is that Kathleen had ultimately died from blood loss. And get this. She was alive for 90 minutes to two hours after sustaining the injuries. So she had fallen long before. Well, she had fallen or something had happened long before. He called the cops. Yeah, long before paramedics arrived. And, you know, Michael said that he had just come in after smoking a cigarette. He He hadn't even noticed or he hadn't seen her in a while. But... Two hours. That's a long time. I mean, I smoke cigarettes and it has never taken me two hours to smoke a cigarette. By yourself. I mean, I don't even think it would take me two hours to smoke an entire pack of cigarettes. <laughs> okay, well, there you have it. We've got the expert here expert. with us. So the medical examiner ultimately ruled the death a homicide uh, or a homicidal assault. A trial proceeded and the prosecutor, who happened to be the same one that Michael had written about in his columns, James Harden Jr., charged Michael with murder. Michael, of course, pleaded not guilty. Surprise, surprise. The defense pushed back. Um, They had some evidence of their own. They stated Kathleen's skull had not been fractured by blows, nor was she brain damaged, which is inconsistent with injuries sustained by a beating, which we've kind of already talked about because there's no way she would have gotten those lacerations on the top of her head from just falling down the stairs. So I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but there's a ton of blood on the scene, pools of blood on the lower landing and the first few stairs. If you haven't seen this area, take a peek at the picture because, honestly, it's kind of a strange angle and kind of hard to picture if you haven't haven't seen it. You know what I'm talking about, that landing right in the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kathleen had blood on the bottom of her feet, which meant that she had gotten up at some point after the injury. She hadn't just continued to fall down the way the defense attorney claimed because he claimed that she had fallen down, gotten back up, tried to walk up the stairs again, and then fallen back down. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and her injuries were on the top of her head. Like I've said so many times, it's not the right angle for her to have fallen and injured herself on the stairs. And the other thing is, is that there's not that much room, in my opinion, on that staircase for that to even happen. Yeah. So there has to be another explanation of, you know, what really happened to Kathleen. So the defense, the defense, of course, had a blood spatter forensic expert come in and testify about the evidence. The prosecution hired a blood spatter expert as well, and we'll talk about him later. But both are defending their reputations right now as of 2019. So all around this group of blood spatter forensic scientists were not that great in this case. So let's chat about the first guy. His name is Henry Lee. As of 2019, Henry is defending his reputation after a murder conviction from 1989 is being thrown out. 
Lawyers claim that he convicted or that the conviction came from jury's perception based on testimony given by Lee. Um, Lee had stated that a blood smear on a towel found at the crime scene was consistent with blood and quote unquote could be blood. Years later, a lab technician came forward and claimed that the towel had in fact never been tested. So are we going to trust anything that this guy said? Seems sketchy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. So Michael's trial was brutal and his life and credibility were pulled apart. The prosecutor stated that his motives to kill Kathleen was that he had or she had discovered that he was having an affair with a man. And of course, there was the $1.5 million life insurance policy um, on Kathleen. Always plays a factor. Yep. So here's a quote from Assistant District Attorney Frida Black. Kathleen would have been infuriated by learning that her husband, who who she had truly loved, was bisexual and having an extramarital relationship, not with another woman, but a man which would have been humiliating and embarrassing to her. We believe that once she learned this information, that an argument ensued and and a homicide occurred. The defense argued that Kathleen had known about her husband's affair and that he was bisexual and claimed that they were all a very happy family and the relationship between Kathleen and Michael was perfectly fine. Now, if I had found out my husband was having an affair with anybody, I don't care if it was a man or a woman, I would be pretty upset. So this explanation of this argument kind of happening and then a homicide, it doesn't seem too out of the ordinary to me. Seems pretty logical. Not not logical yeah. as in that's how you solve a problem, but I given, could see it happening. his tendencies and history. Yes. Seems like his... Uh, M.O. <laughs> So Dr. uh, Kenneth Snell, who was a key prosecution witness, um, was at the scene of the crime and encouraged an autopsy. He stated that he believed that Kathleen had been beaten with a round or rounded blunt instrument that was relatively light. He encouraged the police to begin looking for a crowbar or a fire poker. Turns out there was a blow poke missing from the Peterson living room. So a blow poke is like like a long, sort of like a brassy sort of a thing. It's rounded, it's blunt, and it's light. And it had... And it can do damage. Yes. And it had been given to the Peterson family by Kathleen's sister. I'll try and find a picture of it, because um, I know they're there, so I'll put it in the blog. Um, it had been leaning against the fireplace for years, friends said. But on the night of the death, it was nowhere to be found. Michael's attorney, David Rudolph, went through great lengths to try and prove that the blow poke had not been near the fireplace for years and went so far as to dig up family pictures of the living room and in the the place where the blow poke was said to be was Kathleen's father's cane, which is sort of like weird in itself. But couldn't, couldn't the cane have done just as much damage? I guess so, but they were really stuck on this blow poke. Later in the trial, the blow poke was actually found in the garage um, covered in spider webs and bugs. There's a picture of this too. Um, supposedly not touched in a long time. Rudolph entered the 
uh, brass blowpoke into evidence and said that it was found by an unspecified person at an unspecified time, meaning they kind of, they could have had this blowpoke in their possession for who knows how long. And if I'm not mistaken, I thought that it was one of the sons that had found the blowpoke, but I could be totally wrong. I'm not sure why I think that, but I think it was one of the family members who had found it. Um, and keep in mind that multiple detectives looked multiple times in that garage for the blowpoke specifically, and nobody found it. Hmm. Yeah. So the jury didn't pay much attention to the blowpoke because it wasn't mangled or bent or covered in blood, and therefore they completely disregarded it as the murder weapon. Um, and I don't want to give anything away, but I am going to jump around a bit here. We all know Michael was found guilty. But Rudolph, his defense attorney, was shocked. He really believed that the reveal of the quote-unquote missing blowpoke would provide reasonable doubt and get his client off. There is a quote, um, and it says, In my mind, when the prosecution spends three months telling the jury that your client beat somebody to death with a blowpoke and you bring the blowpoke, if that's not reasonable doubt, I don't know what reasonable doubt is. So he was pretty upset that he didn't you know, get his client off. One of the jurors uh, later came forward and is, and expressed his reasonings for doubting the defense team's recovery. Um, quote, it was awful strange to us that five different detec- detectives had gone through the basement looking for that exact thing and none of them had found it. Then two or three months later, it was propped up against the wall. So they were suspicious of, you know, Michael and the defense team kind of the whole time. Okay, so we're jumping around again a little bit, and I'm sorry, but you know The Staircase, right? The Netflix series, The Staircase. It's by Jean-Xavier de Lestrade. Lestrade? You know what I'm talking about. We watched it. We're talking about it now. Oh, that staircase. Yes, that one. Yeah, I know that staircase. Anyway, Jean-Xavier actually catches Michael's reaction to the quote-unquote surprise poker on tape and guess what Michael asks. What's he ask? He asks if the poker has blood on it. Hmm. Seems like a weird first thing to ask about it. It does. And... Everybody else thought so, too. So Jean Xavier actually had to try and explain away this reaction by saying that Michael believed the Durham police were trying to frame him by planting the blowpoke with his wife's blood on it in his basement, which I don't know what to think about that. Do you? I mean, he's got reason to believe that he's kind of maybe being set up since he wrote those articles about the guy. Right. So they definitely have a vendetta against him, but Maybe. it seems like he he brought it upon himself too. Yeah. So now I have a quote from Michael. Um, this is after the conviction, and I believe it's from the Jean Xavier series. Um, and he says, well, of course I thought, well, that's the only thing he's basing his case on. It's this blowpoke. And then it wasn't the blowpoke. So, of course, I thought, well, for all of these other reasons, including the fact that I certainly didn't kill Kathleen. Well, I certainly didn't kill her with the blowpoke. 
So I thought, of course, this solves the problem for the case. And then I find out it didn't even make any difference to the jury. Something else must have caused those injuries, but nobody knows what. So that's a really interesting statement that he said, well, I certainly didn't kill her with the blow poke. Yeah, that's weird. That's very weird. Why Why even say that at all? Yeah, it's just unnecessary attention. Exactly. Okay, so let's move on to a new theory. And this is my personal favorite. Do you know what it is? The owl theory. <laughs> yes, the owl theory. So Michael's defense attorney did not provide this theory, actually. It was a man named Larry Pollard who was a lawyer, and he happened to be one of Peterson's neighbors. He came up with this theory close to the end of the trial, um, and this is how it goes. Kathleen was coming in the house when an owl swooped down and dug its talons deep into Kathleen's skull. She continued inside and was able to escape the owl and hurried up the stairs to tend to her wounds. As she was trying to quickly go up the stairs, she slipped and fell backwards and bled to death. Believe it or not, there is evidence to corroborate these claims. Microscopic owl feathers were found along with some of Kathleen's hair in her hand, as if she had been pulling her own hair like out to get the owl off her head. So she had caught the owl's feathers in her hand as she was, you know, pulling it off her head. And wasn't there like a reported owl attack like in that area? Yeah. Earlier? So we'll get to that. So Kathleen's head injuries themselves were kind of oddly shaped. It was almost as if they were like a trident pattern. Um, and they were all of equal depths. So this could correspond with an owl attack. Um, and this guy... Uh, Owls are big birds. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, Larry Pollard, actually reached out to experts um, to ask them. And they actually agreed um, that there was a possibility that it could be... It could have been an owl attack. Um, and uh, owl attacks are not common. And like you said... NBC's Dateline actually found a local man who had been attacked by an owl and the attack was caught on camera. He said that it hurt so bad he felt like he was being hit with a baseball bat and there was so much blood he thought he had lost an eye. So that's pretty scary. That is pretty scary. That seems like a pretty violent attack, honestly. <clears throat> so although there seems to be you know, a lot of evidence showing that this could possibly be a possibility. Rudolph, um, Michael's defense attorney, couldn't bring it forward as an official theory because it was too late in the trial. It was just before closing statements. Um, and he said that he, he was ashamed that he hadn't thought about it before. The feather was right there in her hand, but he had always assumed it was from a down comforter or a pillow or something. Um, and Rudolph said he couldn't bring it forward because he had just spent the last few months trying to convince the jury it was a fall. He couldn't just turn around and say, oh, hey, it was an owl out of the blue. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's tough. I guess didn't really do his full homework assignment there. Yeah, I, I don't think so. But personally, I think this whole thing is nonsense. Like the, the owl theory. The owl theory. I don't think it's complete nonsense. It's not complete nonsense, but it didn't happen. I, I do think that given the fact that there was an owl attack in the area, and all the lacerations on her head makes it believable. But like you said, if that guy was in so much pain. She would have been yelling had an owl been 
it had its claws in her skull, and then he would have had to have heard that and come running. Well, that's true. And if the owl actually attacked her, she would have been outside. And if he was still outside smoking his cigarette, they would have both been outside. So he would have had to have hurt her. Yeah. It's not like she would have been attacked by the owl, gone inside, and then started screaming. She would have been screaming the whole time, probably. Yeah. And had... See, originally when I heard this case, I didn't know about his the previous um, lady in Germany who also fell down the stairs. Mm-hmm. So I gave more, you know, thought to the owl theory, but then knowing that another lady he was involved with fell down the stairs, and also this, mm-hmm. it seems pretty coincidental. And also, what would an owl do with one point two million dollars? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. He'd have a lot of tootsie pops <laughs> to look to the center of. Okay. It is believed that after the argument with Kathleen about Michael's affair, he beat her until he thought she was dead. After a while, Kathleen woke up and Michael beat her again until she was actually dead. He then attempted to stage the scene and called 911 to try and cover up what he had done. Although Rudolph attempted to convince the jury that Michael had been financially stable at the time of Kathleen's death, it became clear that all the money was Kathleen's and Michael hadn't made a dime in over three years. At the time of her death in 2001, the Petersons had more than $140,000 in credit card debt. I'm sorry, that number scares me. Hardin, the defense attorney, famously described Michael's financial state as financial fire. And the only way he could solve the problem they had gotten themselves into was to get Kathleen's $1 million life insurance payout. It is believed that after the argument with Kathleen about Michael's affair, he beat her until he thought she was dead. After a while, Kathleen woke up and Michael beat her again until she was actually dead. He then attempted to stage the scene and called 911 to try and cover up what he had done. Although Rudolph attempted to convince the jury that Michael had been financially stable at the time of Kathleen's death, it became clear that all the money was Kathleen's and Michael hadn't made a dime in over three years. At the time of her death in 2001, the Petersons had more than $140,000 in credit card debt. I'm sorry, that number scares me. Hardin, the defense attorney, famously described Michael's financial state as financial fire. And the only way he could solve the problem they had gotten themselves into was to get Kathleen's $1 million life insurance payout. On October 10th, 2003, after one of the longest trials in North Carolina history, it was about 13 weeks, I think, Michael Peterson was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. His attorney immediately filed for appeal. In 2011, after many denied appeals, Peterson was finally given a second chance at trial after it was found that a key prosecution witness was found to have perjured himself in this case and many other cases, and that would be Dwayne Deaver. And I do not like this man at all. He ma- he makes me very mad. He was a major part of this trial and he did the blood spatter analysis. Um, and it was discovered that Dwayne had falsified evidence in 34 cases, which meant all these cases and all the work that everybody had done on these cases were called into question. 
And it gave Michael a second chance at freedom. And I'm sure a lot of other killers and a lot of guilty people were given a second chance at freedom when they didn't deserve it. And it was all because Dwayne wasn't doing his job. Dwayne. I know. Anyway, rather than go back to court, Michael agreed to plead to an Alfred plea, which is basically when a defendant pleads guilty but admits to no wrongdoing. So right now, in 2020, he is a free man. Well, he he in, entered the plea not – he didn't say that he was guilty, but he said that basically the evidence presented against him makes it highly likely that he is guilty – so he's not entering a guilty plea, but he basically is. And he's still out. Well, he was given um it was like a ten year sentence and then with the time that he had already served. Yeah. That already I think I, he, I think he served eight years. <clears throat> now I know this is a long episode, but there's one more point I'd like to touch on, um, and that is the staircase series itself. I don't know if anybody knows this. I didn't when I first started looking into this, um, but it was only weeks after Kathleen's death that Michael granted Jean Xavier de Lestrade total access to himself and his family. So they started recording for that series, The Staircase, only weeks after Kathleen's death. Seems like another money grab. Yeah. Why would somebody do this? Why would a man who is trying to prove his innocence of killing his wife let somebody come into his home in such a horrible point and document it all? That's just so strange to me. That is strange. Where did the um, kids all fall on this? Did they believe Michael or did they think that he had something to do with it? Especially the Especially the two daughters. So whose mom also fell down the staircase. As far as I know, the two daughters, Martha and Margaret, and the two sons, all believe Michael. The one person that doesn't believe Michael is Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, and her sister, Kathleen's sister. So they've, as far as I know, have lost touch with, with the Peterson family. So back to this <clears throat> recording, in total, there, uh, there is 650 hours of the Peterson's life recorded, um, and it was sold to different people in different formats. So the footage was shown on many different occasions before the Netflix, um, the Staircase series came out. And there was something, I believe, that came out in France first, and then I believe Canada. Um, and this is all the years following this case um and then the netflix series i think came out like two years ago sounds about right yeah so one last thing um is that you know elizabeth's case after this case went all through was called back into question um and although michael wasn't um prosecuted or anything for it i think the general belief is that there is a possibility he did have something to do with that that because he got he got money from that too. Well, he got the through adopting the girls, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's a big case. That was a lot, and I hope that you guys all enjoyed it. Um, I set up a forum on my site, so head over there and let me know your thoughts and what you think happened. Um, I'm really curious to see if you guys like what you guys think. All of my resources will be posted below um, in my blog, 
um, and the link will be in the show notes. Um, next week, we're hoping to have a guest on the show, and we are super excited to introduce her to you guys. So I can't wait um, for next week. I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Give us a five-star rating and comment below. Thank Catch you. Catch you guys on the flip side. <laughs> on the flippity flip. On the flippity flip. <laughs>